I'm Alina Utrada, and this is the Anti-Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. The Anti-Dystopians is hosted and produced by me to provide a space to have conversations about radical and critical approaches to technology. If you'd like to support the production of the Anti-Dystopians, you can subscribe to our email newsletter by following the links below. We also include links to articles, books, or other additional reading mentioned in our conversations, as well as alerts about upcoming episodes, so be sure to take a look. To stop the world from descending into dystopia, subscribe to the Anti-Dystopians wherever you get your podcasts. Hi everyone, I'm Benjamin Tan. I'm a PhD student here at the University of Cambridge in the history of political thought. I'll be hosting today's episode because our guest is your usual host, Elena Utrano. We'll be talking about her recent article, in the American Political Science Review, Engineering Territory, Space, and Colonies in Silicon Valley. Welcome, Alina. Thank you so much, Ben. And I'm really delighted that you agreed to take over the hosting spot because, um, as you can see from your very prominent place in the acknowledgments of this piece, um, you were so foundational um, to the work from its you know, beginning when it was just an angry rant about Musk and SNL to the end, and you've probably read it more times than, than even me. Um, so thank you so, so much. There's no one else I'd rather be having this conversation with. Oh, that's very nice of you to say. I, I learned a lot from reading it, and I learned a lot from your work in general. Um, and I'm very excited to talk about your latest article. Um, and so as I read the article, one central line of argument is that you're, what you're trying to do is, that, is trying to situate Bezos and Musk within a longer history of terrestrial, or what you call earthly, projects of colonization, and to sort of resist the urge to think, as they would like us to think, that this is something radically new. Um, could you tell us first a little bit about how you came to the subject of study? Um, does it fit into your wider work in, currently in the PhD? The article itself is, as you say, trying to locate Musk and Bezos, like visions of outer space colonization within earthly histories of colonialism. I found that like in these discussions, even though outer space colonialism is like explicitly using the word colonialism, people still kind of think of it as a break from the colonial past, right? They're like, oh, this is about neoliberalism. This is about libertarianism. Um, and like my own uh, PhD work. So like I started, uh, you know, hearing more about uh, these outer space colonization things. I mean, I just kind of, you know, I grew up in Silicon Valley, so it was always kind of in the, you know, back of your mind, you kind of hear these bits about it. But in 2020, it was when Elon Musk was on SNL, as you remember, my rage, um, <laughs> doing, and he had like this, this skit, this very explicit skit in which, you know, he, as CEO of SpaceX, a private corporation, not, you know, Musk, blah, 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 at NASA, um, had this this colony on Mars, which like had a horrible accident and like Pete Davidson is killed, you know, and he's like, oh well, you know, and so it was like, this is your vision for space colonization? Like this kind of really awful imagination and vision, I, I thought. Um, so that so that kind of got me a, a, a bit upset. And at the same time, I was kind of reading for my own PhD, which as you say is, is on um, corporations and technology corporations specifically, this kind of new historical literature on company states, so like Philip Stern's work, my own supervisor, Jason Charman's work on, on, on company states, like the British East India Company, Dutch East India Company, chartered corporations, um, which, you know, are, it's not the state, air quotes, um, which looked very different, you know, in these time periods, um, but it is private corporations, it's private individuals going out um, and, and forging, you know, and kind of doing the colonizing themselves. Um, and then the state, you know, obviously has an interest in this, they're giving money or they, you know, they benefit or they kind of annex or take over, um, or support these, these corporations. So it seemed to me that like this history was very, very similar. And so the analysis or kind of the public perception of this being something totally new and it'll be totally fine. Um, it seemed to me that there was a space to kind of intervene and say, no, 
um, no, it won't be good. Um, and obviously, as you know, it's spun out of control from <laughs> a blog post into a Boston Review article into a full kind of academic um, academic piece and probably will be a book in the future as well. Um, so, so that's kind of the, the overview of the project. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really glad it came out in, in APSR for sort of as an, in a journal for academics and specifically political scientists and political theorists. Um, I think that's a really good place to start in terms of thinking about what we mean when we discuss space colonization. Because as, as you noted, even the people who propose space colonization, people like Musk, often treat it as sort of this far-fetched joke. Right. And, and if you are a casual observer, even if you are an academic in political science, you might also think the same because this is the sort of public perception. So when we talk about space colonization, are we just thinking about uh, sort of the kind of things that we see in headlines like space tourism, um, these one off and these broader fantasies? Or is there more? Yeah, I think I think that's a really good point And about about this feeling like a joke. Um, and that's definitely something, again, I think, I think you're right. It was interesting writing because this was an academic piece, even in public facing pieces, you can get this kind of sarcastic edge to talking about these, these crazy ideas. Because as you say, they're so crazy. Like Elon Musk has literally said, oh, you know, Mars's atmosphere isn't conducive to, to humans, so, but that's fine. We'll just drop some nuclear bombs on it. And like when you repeat that, you can't help but just sound really scathing in a way where I think people are like, that's so crazy. There's no way that people will do it. But then if you have to write in this very academic tone, you realize like, no, this is crazy. And also people are doing it. Um, So in terms of of what's actually happening in space, as I kind of outlined in the piece, Musk and Bezos have two very different visions for what's going to happen. And then the, the U.S. kind of government and apparatus and also like other states of so China, India, Europe, etc. also have, have different projects for what's going on. Um, so Musk, as I kind of outlined, is, is kind of has this like settler colonial vision. So he he wants, much like his SNL skit, wants there to be um, colonies on Mars. Um, which will be independent from any earthly government. And actually, in his terms of service, or at least it was at the time, I don't know if it's been removed now, in the terms of service for the his Starlink satellite service, if you agree to that, there's a subclause there that says, like, the person agreeing to this service agrees that, you know, Mars is an independent nation and, and, you know, no or, or independent entity, I forget the exact wording, something, and, and no earthly government can have sovereignty there. Something along these lines about independence. Obviously, legally, that won't hold up at all, but, you know, that's, that's his kind of vision, um, is that um, he, you know, there'll, there'll be these kind of independent colonies that are separate from Earth to, that are kind of like in his mind, like a backup in case apocalypse happens on Earth. Bezos, I argue, has a sort of more imperial vision. He pulls this from um, a, a Princeton professor called Gerard O'Neill um, of orbiting uh, uh, almost like the International Space Station, kind of just like orbiting structures around Earth, which he says will be like Maui on a good day. Um, so it'll, there'll be these really luxurious kind of space hotels, um, that, that people can, can live on. Um, and he's like, and then earth can be zoned as a national park and we can protect it. So there's this kind of like environmental solutionism to it, which as I point out, doesn't really hold up in terms of if you actually want to stop climate change, you probably shouldn't be wasting enormous carbon resources going to space, but whatever. Um, so so that's their sort of visions. And then I think I think for Musk's, I think it's like very, he says he wants to die on Mars. I don't actually think that he'll be able to establish a colony on Mars in his lifetime. However, um, I do think that the moon will have colonies on it and will very, very soon. So like NASA, again, in partnership with SpaceX, there's a New York Times article about it recently called like Houses on the Moon. So they're building um, a lunar colony up there. Um, now, obviously, this is part of like a geopolitical uh, race 
um, you know, they, they want to, at the moment there are treaties that say you can't like militarize space, et cetera, et cetera. But obviously everyone's trying to do it first. Um, so, so this is, I think part of, again, a strategic move on the part of the U.S. government that they want to have a military base on the moon, but they've also said they want civilian housing up there, and they have like a 3D printer up there for um, uh, to print houses, and they want people living there for lengthy periods by the end of the decade. Again, it's not clear if those timelines will work, um, but, but certainly uh, within private industry and also within the highest levels of government, there is this genuine push genuine as in billions of dollars are being spent on this to have people living long term in space um again as you say there is some space tourism things right like this idea that like oh we'll get we'll we'll um we'll get people in space and it'll be kind of like a leisure cruise um but people like jeff bezos have been very explicit that this is sort of just space tourism is just the first step to getting people comfortable and used to the idea of living in space with this long-term strategy of there being settlements in space. So you draw this distinction between Musk and Bezos in the article, um, and you describe how they sort of draw from different intellectual ideological resources to, to, to flesh out these visions of space colonization, which are quite different if you follow them logically to the end. Do you think that these differences are down to sort of personal disposition or is it sort of part of this broader geopolitical fight? They're trying to, you know, angle for different kinds of political power or corporate power. Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think I think it is true. They have slightly different orientations ideologically, even though they might they might self-describe as libertarian, although I don't necessarily know if if must has a like labeled ideology in that way um he sort of picks and chooses um but from bezos perspective i think um if you look at kind of biographies of bezos and stuff it's very clear he's been obsessed with space for a really long time like since childhood so his like high school valedictorian speech he talks about space colonization um and and he's like obsessed with star trek so people have like noted that his new look is very similar to a star trek character like his dog is named after a star trek character right he took william shatner the star trek actor to space right so so there's this like um um love of of literature almost um uh that 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 inspired him and i i think that's a genuine that's his genuine um uh motivator right i think an ex-girlfriend said at one point like oh the reason jeff bezos is accumulating so much wealth is to get to space and he did leverage the um the the money he made at amazon and was like pouring it into his private space company blue origin so in the early years of blue origin he was spending he was selling a million a year in amazon stock to fund blue origin before actually looking over at Elon Musk and being like, how's he getting so much money and realizing, oh my gosh, it's all government contracts. We need to get in on that. Um, so Blue Origin technologically is a little bit behind, or rather actually a lot behind um, SpaceX at the moment. And then and then when Bezos goes to, to Princeton as an undergrad, he joins Gerard O'Neill's, um, or joins, he joins the, it's some club, it's called like the Club for Space Development, et cetera. Something, you know, outer space lovers. Uh, club, uh, undergraduate club at Princeton, um, and he basically just completely follows Gerard O'Neill's sort of template for space. So, so it's Gerard O'Neill, this Princeton professor, who argued, um, you know, we need to have these these floating colonies um, in in space, these these structures orbiting rather than terraforming planets. He calls it planetary chauvinism. This like. Uh, idea that you have to settle on a planet you can just build these structures um and so so i think for bezos he wants to go to space and gerard o'neill is a very convenient person for whom he can just take the ideas wholesale so he sort of updated um gerard o'neill's ideas for the modern context so gerard o'neill's like writing in this period of like urban unrest racial tension in the u.s and white flight and so a lot of other academics have noted, you know, this comes in the context of, of kind of white flight to suburban 
enclosures, he sort of has the same vision for these these floating um, colonies that they'll be, you know, you can have your like white utopian colony, but you you can also have like other kinds of micropolities which are in another structure over there and they can experiment whatever they want and have any racial makeup that they want, right? So again, this, this um, which is very similar to kind of some of the contemporary uh, Peter Thiel's and anarcho-capitalists of the world. Um, but, but I think for Bezos, right, um, fundamentally, like he just really wants to get to space and will borrow whatever, whatever um, political ideology is most convenient for him. Um, Musk is probably kind of similar. I mean, it's really hard to parse as Musk to, to figure out what Musk, Musk's ideology is because he's it's he just says so many outrageous things, so many like contradictory things. He says it kind of tongue in cheek. Sometimes he says outrageous things and he means it. Like for instance, um, you know, when he's like, oh, I want to drop nuclear bombs on Mars, you can kind of laugh and sometimes people do laugh, but then he says it so consistently that, you know, I think he, he means it. Um, whereas sometimes he says things he doesn't mean, so it's very hard to kind of like put together something coherent. Um, but I think similarly, like he's, he also just thinks is it, it's kind of an almost like childlike ideal, idolization of space colonization. So he cites Douglas Adams, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but among others, I mean, they're all, both Bezos and Musk are citing a lot of, um, science fiction literature. Um, and just, you know, getting attached to this idea and feeling like this is the obvious next step. So in civilization and humankind, you know, Musk tends to use a little bit more of a civilization discourse. Um, and I think he definitely does have this idea of these independent colonies, right? Which will have links to the earth, but will ultimately be self-sufficient. Whereas I think Bezos, and like, and again, this kind of fits with his idea of like, what Amazon ought to be. It's a little bit more like the British East India Company. Like, it'll be its own thing. It'll be independent. He's like, space entrepreneurs can start, you know, space startups in their dorm room. You know, it's a very much like leaning into this Silicon Valley entrepreneurial ideology where, you know, it's, it's supported by the state, but ultimately it has independence. But it's kind of more imperial in its outlook where, where business and corporations are very linked and there's a sort of... Um, but sort of a mutual kind of benefit for both the state and private companies. Um, then, you know, where everyone will make money, essentially. Yeah. As a historian of political thought myself, I'm, I'm quite interested in sort of how you parse the thought of these of these figures, because they're not, you know, they're not the kind of, kind of conventional thinkers that political theorists, historians of political thought study, in the sense that they are often, they don't present a coherent ideology or even an ideology at all. Sometimes Musk just seems like he's, you know, up late and tweeting. Um, <laughs> and, and just tweeting whatever yeah, comes probably. to mind. Um, and, and, and you note in the article that sometimes their statements are, are just a way to distract from, you know, their exploitative business practices, their other controversies, um, while they're also putting their money, their money where the mouth is, and, mm -hmm, and sort of mm -hmm. investing lots of money um, into realizing these visions. Could you just talk a little bit about how you sort of navigated that that interpretive problem? How yeah. you present these thinkers in an academic setting? Yeah, it was it was interesting. I remember we were talking about this earlier, where it's like very odd to read. Um, as I was trying to write, like it was very odd to write and then reread this analysis of Musk and Bezos as if it was like, you know, Rousseau or like, you know, one of these like traditional names in history of political thought. Um, but I think it's, I, but then I think it was sort of like the same process that you'd go through with like any thinker, which is that, you know, any thinker, even if they're deliberately stylizing themselves as as an academic or like a thought leader to use modern parlance or like an intellectual leader, you know, historically, um, will say things that are contradictory, will say things that don't quite make sense. They'll change their mind. 
they'll say something, you know, like, you think about, like, Hobbes, right, who's writing, and then people say, well, he had to write this, of course, he was going to be beheaded if he didn't. So, um, you know, they're writing in their political context, and it's unclear if they really do uh, uh, believe it. So it's it's sort of the same thing. And at the same time, you know, I was reading, I mean, text about um, private individuals, um, so, like, Stephen Press's uh, book, uh, Rogue... Rogue Merchants, Rogue Empires, Rogue Merchants. It'll be in the show notes. Um, you know, where he talks about these crazy characters from King Leopold to, like, you know, really uh, shady businessmen who are going out. And again, they don't necessarily have, like, an ideological commitment. They're just like, oh, if I argue this, you know, I'll benefit, right? So, um, so like, Andrew Fitzmaurice's work on, like, um, Leopold and his his like lawyer twists and the like legal arguments they put forward again like are they really committed to it probably not but they they you know like ideologically do they really believe in it I don't know maybe but at the end of the day they benefit from it so so I think it was a really similar process and like I said I think it was uh really valuable like just for myself and also in trying to make a contribution for like why we should take this seriously so like one of the the um things I think that people can think of with, one of the the feelings I feel that like the public might have about outer space colonization is like, that's a wacky idea, but if those billionaires wanna waste their own money and time doing that, fine, whatever, it doesn't affect me. Whereas, you know, if you look at like historical forms of colonization, what was happening, that's kind of a similar sentiment is these like really wacky, business guys were going out on these crazy adventures and making like crazy arguments and the state was like fine maybe you can have some money maybe you can have some chartered companies oh maybe we'll benefit from it but it ended up impacting everyone right like it forged um new forms of sovereignty it it you know it led to places that these companies interacted with it changed their histories forever you know massive amounts of violence displacement as well as just like political turmoil right so so I don't think um you can you can bracket them off in that way so that's that's kind of why I think taking them seriously in that academic con um it with that kind of academic voice and language can can be a helpful intervention in terms of saying like no, these people are just as important as people we now understand historically to have been very important. Um, so yeah, so that was kind of the process and the the outlook behind it. So what? So that actually leads very nicely into my next question, which is about the claim that's often made by these figures, but also people generally talking about space colonization, that it's sort of a radical break from other forms of colonization because space is empty. Um, and that even though uh, we might identify particular harms um, that space colonization might cause, you know, it, it'll exacerbate existing relationships of domination and dispossession on Earth, the fact of going out into space can be considered more legitimate, quote unquote, because you're not dispossess- dispossessing people in outer space. There's, it's empty space there to be claimed. Right, and and you sort of try and take apart this argument in your article. Could you just lay out what's wrong with that view of space colonization? So this was, yeah, one of the biggest things I wanted to intervene with because, as you know, when I talked about outer space colonization to other people, and I was like, oh, it's going to be so bad. You know, people were like, oh, yeah, maybe there might be, like, associated harms with it. But ultimately, right, space is empty. So, like, what does it matter? Because kind of... Um, you know, to use language, I don't agree with it, but like it's like, oh, the sins of colonization was, as you say, dispossession, which led to displacement, which led to mass violence and genocide of indigenous communities. So if that's not a part of it, I think Daniel Judany, who I, I cite in the beginning, who wrote this, I mean, he, he wrote a really long critique of space colonization. He says, um, outer space colonization will be uh, imperialism without the guilt because... Uh, there are no indigenous communities to displace in space. Um, and that seemed to me really insufficient um, that you could you can get away from these associated harms uh, because it's empty. Um, and actually, again, at the time I was reading Robert Nichols's book, Theft is Property, which is a really, really interesting, um, uh, 
you know, he, he's drawing on like kind of indigenous conceptions of, of property in, in the history of colonization um, to, to show to show how this was like legally and politically justified. So he, he argues that, um, it, you know, indigenous communities claims to having their land stolen can sometimes feel, be or seem paradoxical because um, indigenous communities also claim that they don't conceive of land or nature as territorial property, but to claim theft presupposes a property right. So he makes this argument that indigenous dispossession must be understood as the simultaneous imposition of certain forms of property and their theft, right? Um, or, or let's say if you go to like a mountain um, or like a, a, a piece of nature to say, you know, that's mine now requires both transforming that area into this square by square territorial like acreage of space and also saying that space is mine. So there's two things happening. Or as he points out, you know, indigenous communities have tons of different conceptualizations of property, right? So, or ownership. So, you know, you could have the right to like fish from the stream at certain times of year or to like harvest fruit from this area. Um, or that, as he points out, right, and the New Zealand government actually, the New Zealand state has um, uh, codified this understanding of, of uh, nature as persons, so certain mountains or certain forests, although again, it's kind of contested about whether it's good or helpful to have the state um, involved in, in this form of ownership in this way, uh, right? But the point is you can understand um, uh, space, and I mean like spaces, in many different ways, and that will then it, um, lend itself onto different forms of property. And so, thinking like I was, so as I was reading this book and thinking about space, it seemed to me like the same thing was going on in space. And so, the different ways you have of conceptualizing um, outer space as potential forms of property um, then will lend itself to different forms of rule um, and political relationships between people. So the the, the um, Example I like to use, it didn't make it into the piece, I understand why, um, but is is to think, if we think about um, outer space from the perception of, of Despicable Me, so again, if you haven't seen the film, excellent film, um, but in this film, the evil villain Gru wants to steal the moon, right? And obviously as a form of light, the moon can't be stolen, right? So, you know, the moon shines on us all, um, light is a sort of like non-exclude, non exclusivable resource, right? Um, we all experience it. But if, say, Elon Musk's satellite obscures the sky, everybody can kind of object to that. Because you're like, hey, it's light pollution. Uh, you're ruining, like, telescope research, astronomy research. You're, like, impacting celestial navigators. You're impacting, you know, animals um, who, like, use the stars for navigation. Um, you know, this is, this is impacting all of us because it's light. Uh, in the film, though, Gru has this kind of super ray and he shrinks the moon into something really small, like an apple that he, well, it actually ends up being a little bit bigger than an apple. But the idea is if it's an apple, it's small enough that he can put it in his pocket, right? And so you, you transform the moon into an object um, in which you possess it and have this, this control over it in the same way that I might, you know, possess an apple or my pen or my laptop. It's mine. Um, and that then is even different from, say, a third way of conceptualizing the moon as territorial property. So at the end of the film, the kind of rival supervillain is, is sent to the moon, and you can see him kind of dancing on it as, as if it's land, right? So he's kind of claimed these territorial plots, you know, it's implied, of the moon as land that he can then do it with as he pleases. So all of these are about the same space. You know, this is, you can say that this is all about the moon, but if you conceptualize the moon as light, as an object, or as territorial property, then your relation to, to it and the relationships of others in relation to your ownership is changed. Um, and so that was sort of my claim about how the empty frontier must be invented, right? So in order for Musk and Bezos or whoever, you know, the US state, to go out and claim the moon, for example, as, as 
as property, as territorial property, they have to first conceptually transform it into territory and then claim it, then claim ownership. And so I argue, right, um, this is sort of a, a, a parallel or similar process to what was happening in indigenous dispossession in which, you know, European colonizers were going out and saying, this is territorial property now and it's ours. Um, and so you can understand the same thing happening with space is that first people have to go and say that you must think of this as territorial property and also it's ours. Yeah, and, and you encapsulate that really nicely with the title, Engineering Territory, which really calls attention to sort of the, the conceptual work that's being done in space colonization rhetoric. If I were a, a skeptic, I might push back and say, well, that conceptual work doesn't really, it, it's still not the same as territorial uh, colonization because where's the harm, right? Mm -hmm, what, mm -hmm. what would you say to that? So I think... Again, for, for the point of the conceptual intervention was that it would highlight how political, for, political and legal formations end up justifying certain behaviors and certain kind of like amalgamations and formations of power. So it's certainly true, right, that forced displacement of indigenous communities living in the in space will not necessarily happen but that but the point is that it will lead to these harmful um or i should say it will lead to these certain um formations of political rule and power that will be harmful so if you think about like in the earthly context uh, when people talk about decolonization, which is a term that I don't really quite like because I think it can get tossed around and uh, kind of abused and uh, the, the meaning of, of the, the kind of thick meaning of it get eroded. Um, but if you think about, say, like in the U.S. context where I'm from, I think that, the, and again, this is my personal opinion, quote unquote, giving back land or giving back certain territories to say indigenous nations or tribes isn't really sufficient sufficient to think about deconstructing the amalgamations of power that have come from thinking of these spaces as territorial property which will re require as i kind of lay out in the argue in the in the article a kind of more fundamental reimagining of what it means to be a sovereign community and how power is organized um so like modern states are based on like these territorialized forms of rule as I kind of lay out in the piece. Um, and so this, this idea that states rule over territories um, or, or even are territorial entities and therefore they can do whatever they want in that space. Um, and uh, in the US at least, then indigenous nations or like first nations have this very kind of like uncomfortable space in the in the kind of u.s western imperial uh state mindset of like are they sovereign nations like are they inter like nations internal to us or states or spaces internal to us are they under the rule of the state are they their own thing like if they're you know and it's this um kind of awkward not awkward but like this very uncomfortable dance then to try to um, justify the, the domination. Uh, um, and so to really, so I argue basically in the piece that we, if we kind of break apart what territory and territorial rule means, both for like private property and individuals, but also in terms of justifying the state, then we must necessarily understand non-territorial entities. So like indigenous tribes and like corporations, as political entities, and we have to negotiate different forms of um, um, how we understand who, go say, governs what, right? So if the moon is not territorial property, different political communities on Earth need to negotiate between one another about how we should relate to the moon, right? Like, how, how should we relate to the sky? Who should be allowed and how should we govern satellites for instance 
Um, whereas if the moon is claimed as territorial property, and then territory, you know, is the sovereign property of whatever the United States of the moon or whatever with its own government, then nobody has the right to object to the light that's going on from the moon because that's its own independent nation and its own space and it can rule over that however it wants, right? And so, um, again, it's not trying to uh, um, discount uh, or, or equate, I should say, the kind of like genocidal violence that happened in terrestrial colonization, but just showing how that, that logic of colonialism has persisted and is being uh, projected into space in ways that obviously aren't going to um, uh, unfold exactly how terrestrial colonialism did, but will but will result in um, the sort of consolidation of similar forms and formations of power in a way you know that's literally caused the climate crisis, right? Like that's caused really really harmful. Con continues to cause really harmful things from, you know, um, the continued domination and dispossession of indigenous communities uh, to, you know, uh, you know, slavery uh, to, 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 you know, the uh, environmental catastrophe that we find ourselves in, right? So, so I think we need to, like, at a deeper, like, fundamental level, um, really reevaluate how political rule is justified and formed and, and how it ought to be formed. And space seems like a really interesting vector or way to think about that. Yeah, that's great. And it's reading the article, I got the sense that implied in the argument is, is the, the very claim, the very project of space colonization, both as a technical project, uh, you know, technical, logistical feet together with the rhetoric of space colonization it sort of is slowly eroding away existing understandings of space as commons or as you know in the article sort of indigenous understandings of space um, and celestial bodies and that this process is sort of um, happening almost without us noticing um, and I really like that about the article and and it made me think about the historical analogy you draw with um, states, European statesmen and jurists trying to justify the scramble for Africa. One of the things that struck me is that this prior discourse um, was really an elite legal discourse among European statesmen to justify to each other, um, given the existing body of international law, how European colonization and the carving up of Africa could take place. Uh, whereas this seems to be more of a public facing project, right? To convince if the US public, for instance, can be convinced that that space isn't the commons, that it, it is, you know, excludable private territory, uh, that it's legitimate. Is, is this, is this yeah. a disanalogy you see or, or am I pushing it too far? No, no, I think you're right. But I do think it's happening on two fronts, right? So so there is that sort of like legal elite discourse that is happening, right? So like, and again, it's something really notable that this is a, a continuous uh, policy orientation of, you know, from Obama through to Trump through to Biden, right? They have very similar... Um, ideas about how space ought to be governed. And so like under Obama, you had the 2015 Space Act, which allowed um, private individuals to like um, uphold property rights of resources extracted from space. You know, this is the idea of like the asteroid mining kind of stuff. Um, again, and there's a lot of Silicon Valley figures who are really involved in these, these companies that are trying to mine minerals from asteroids in space or, or whatever. Um, and again, as you know, um, this is in contravention of like established international law, which understands space as a commons, which says like, no, 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 you can't um, claim, so, you know, no states can claim sovereignty. And again, actually it's like very similar to what was happening legally in terrestrial colonialism when, uh, uh, you know, these private individuals will go out and negotiate these like very legally nebulous treaties with say, Stephen Press's book documents this where you know these like private individuals like very very sketchy characters would go out and negotiate these like very legally nebulous um, uh, 
treaties with, say, like African nations or African tribes or political communities, um, often, you know, lying about the contents of what it said, then would go back to Europe and European powers and be like, hey, you know, we have we're private folks and we've we've negotiated. Um, you know, some form of sovereignty over these spaces. And it's and it's okay because international law just says states can't do that. And then they, you know, so like King Leopold II of Belgium, even though he was king of, of, of Belgium, had private, per, uh, private personal association, which was ostensibly a charitable association, um, acting as a private colony, right? With some of the like most horrific violence you, you have ever seen. Um, so, uh, uh, King Leopold's Ghost, uh, a really uh, excellent but harrowing documentations uh, of that colony, um, right? So it's a loophole, right? Um, and and the same thing is exactly happening with outer space colonization, where you know you see these private companies going out and claiming property, and then it'll slowly, slightly be eroded, and then they might become sovereign nations, or the you know the U.S. state might say like, oh great, we'll we'll take that as part of our own state now. Um, and, you know, you have this kind of diplomatic offensive where, um, you know, Trump and also now the Biden administration is going out to these, um, different countries and trying to negotiate this sort of side treaty, uh, these accords, um, that's just a little, like, asterisk to the Outer Space Treaty, being like, "Mm, actually... You, we said it was a commons, but all of us together, sort of as a group of nations, are going to just kind of slightly say, no, def- it's not. So they're, they're certainly trying very explicitly through diplomatic um, ways to, 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 to change the law, or at least legal norms um, governing space. And there's, you know, go on for ages about that. Um, but as you say, there's also this public push to get the public to think of this as legitimate. And actually, I think it's really quite interesting that, you know, we're so, like in the West at least, we're so like um, enmeshed in this understanding of of space or as nature as territorial property. It's sometimes a bit mind trippy to say like, oh, what if you think of like, you know, uh, a mountain as a person or a river as a person. Actually, there is, I meant to go to the event, but there's actually, um, an organization here in Cambridge trying to get rights of personhood uh, for the river cam, right? Which then would have very different um, ways of understanding when and why you can pollute it, for example, right? So, um, so, so it is happening. But sometimes people are like, "Oh, that's 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 so different and weird from how I'm used to thinking about ownership of space," which is you know these little squares of territorial control, even though that's not really um, necessarily a hundred percent accurate. Um, uh, understanding of how space is governed, whereas outer space, it is much more natural to think of outer space as a commons than it is to think of it as, as territory, right? We do think of the moon as light, as cheese and walls and grama, you know, like, um, if there is, you know, it, it's kind of odd to think of it as, as territorialized space. And so I think in addition to this, like, you know, these public stunts that Bezos and Musk and Branson do with, like, going to space, um, you also see the, the media. Um, so like my partner's in children's literature and she's doing a big project now about um, depictions of space in, uh, in children's animation, you know, from WALL-E, which is very kind of in line with Gerard O'Neill's vision, um, uh, you know, to, I think there's a new Disney space movie um, coming out, like things like planet again i'm citing from squires 2024 here um but uh uh you know there you know the media is really involved in in pushing our understanding of of space um but you can see that that then reverberates right so like musk and bezos are like doing this on purpose but they're in you know the reason that they have this vision of space is because they read the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy or watch Star Trek or Star Wars or whatever. Um, and, you know, going on and on, right? So, like, literature and then science influence each other and they try to imitate one another or, or subvert one another, um, you know, and the public gets caught up with that. Um, so, so I do think it's a kind of two, two-pronged strategy of, of, of that kind of, like, legal 
um, political, high-level diplomatic negotiation, um, but also, as you say, just getting the public excited about it. Yeah, and I, I really like what I really liked about your discussion on engineering territory is sort of the desire to hold open space for other conceptions. You know, you, you have a lovely line in the article about how space as property, that conception, you know, is, is not exhaustive of how um, we might relate to outer space, and that's actually being very quickly forgotten because of this very vigorous public-facing campaign. I wonder then if we could talk then about the link to political exit projects, which is something you also discussed in the article. And Could you explain the link between those arguments about space, outer space as territory and how that links to these really weird, uh, to an outsider, <laughs> strange uh, projects that call themselves seasteading um, that you call political exit projects? Yeah. So for me, like in thinking about, again, because space colonization was such a, it, it was like a side project that spun out of control. Um, and at the same time, I was, as I was researching this, I was also looking at these, um, I call them political exit projects. They're often called libertarian exit, but mm. part of my intervention as the piece is that I don't think they should necessarily be exclusively located in libertarianism because of, you know, their clicks with the colonial past. Um, so I call them political exit. Um, but as you said, these are things like seasteading, um, like charter cities, like Prospera, um, like special economic zone, to some extent special economic zones, right? Um, there's even, I think there's a New York Times article recently that it turned out all these Silicon Valley people like Andreas and the venture capitalist um, in, in Palo Alto bought up all this like property in uh, a little bit north of, of the San Francisco Bay Area and they were gonna try to get their own kind of independent city. So is that these, these projects which are trying to kind of forge um, what they call exit communities. Um, and so the logic, it, it draws a little bit on um, Albert Hirschman's Exit Voice and Loyalty and like a little bit of um, uh, William Rees-Mogg's, daddy of Jacob Rees-Mogg's, um, and James Dale Davison's The Sovereign Individual, among, among other things. But basically the idea is um, we should exit we should exit the state. Individuals should have the ability to exit the state. Um, and the problem is there's kind of not enough competitions in states. So if individuals exit the state and can offer kind of um, alternative or like competition, um, that will spur existing states to like, you know, offer better deals. I, I think they, they imagine this pretty much as like better tax deals, right? Um, not really like, oh, thicker citizenship rights, right? Um, they're thinking of this from like a jurisdictional arbitrage, you know, where corporations are always like, ah, I'm gonna go to Ireland because of zero taxes. So that they, you can bring that down to the individual level. Um, but also, right, so like um, charter cities and like seasteading, which is like literally just like floating platforms on the ocean. And weirdly, mostly men are into this idea. Um, but you go to these conferences. We had Raymond Craig on the podcast of it, and he said, you know, you go to these conferences, and it's mostly men. He's like, some women, but it's mostly men who are interested in living in the floating platforms on the ocean by themselves. Um, and uh, uh, these, again, they seem, and, or islands, right? So it, there's this kind of seductive logic to it, because to have this kind of enclosed territorial space, whether it's like a seastead or whether it's an island or whether it's an island city, like in the case of Prospera, um, kind of like a city state, you're like, oh, that looks in my mind pretty similar to my idea of a state as this like territorial unit, right? So like we think of the map of the United States as like, oh, that's all the territory, there it is. Or like the map of the UK or the map of Singapore, right? Like. Um, uh, it conforms to our understanding of a of a of what a, a proper political entity ought to look like, um, but there's also these like um, cyber cloud exit things uh, going on in which you know pe uh, so like Balaji Srinivasan's piece called um, Network States. He's like ah you know we're gonna leverage the internet and cyberspace um, to to similarly exit right so. And this is kind of the idea of the early techno utopians that like, oh, we can like exit um, 
existing states, states won't be able to control the internet because we're in this like open free space of cyberspace and the which they literally called the electronic frontier. They talked about homesteading on the electronic frontier. So again, in reading this, it seemed very clear that there were links to what's going on in outer space colonization. And in fact, very explicit links because um, a lot of the, the discourse around cyberspace, as Fred Turner has documented, is explicitly drawing on this outer space, drawing O'Neill stuff. Um, so I basically make two, you know, two arguments about this. The first is that these political exit projects are drawing on the same logic of territorialization that outer space is, right? So they are trying to literally engineer territory, whether that's like by building literally engineering platforms in the sea or by engineering cyberspace as space, right? Which is literally just networked computers um, and transforming it into to territorial space. And even though there's this kind of seductive logic and that's kind of the, the word play in the title, they argue they're literally engineering, right? They're like, no, 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 we're engineering territory. And I'm arguing, no, 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 you are transceptually transforming space into territory in the same way that, you know, you transformed space into territory and the moon, you conceptually, and colonists, earthly colonists conceptually transformed space as nature into territory, ter and then territorial property, right? It feels a little bit more, uh, uh, logical if it's it or, or it feels a little bit more uh, yeah logical or, or right when it is spaces that look like territory so like the seasteads but with cyberspace for instance cyberspace is literally networked computers and yet they talk about it as territory as territorial space you know and it has you were talking about public perceptions it's in you know pervaded our everyday language like I'm like oh I visited a website um, and so, um, so, you know, it, it kind of stuck around and we're like, oh yeah, I'm going to go to cyberspace. It's like, you're not going anywhere. You're like looking at, you know, <laughs> you're using cables under the sea to like access and download something. Right. Um, so, so that's the first part. And then the second part is that I say, um, they're doing this deliberately in order to leverage that engineering of territory to create state-like sovereign entities. So if you read Balajai Srinivasan's The Network State, he's very explicit about this. He's like, here are a couple of, or not a couple, he has a whole long list of ways that I think you can start new countries. Um, and I think we should start new countries because we'll be able to, again, drawing from, you know, things like the sovereign individual, um, we'll be able to negotiate privileges with other uh, states, right? So if we can get this territorialized space, claim it as territory, you know, we can't do that in existing states because there's already existing sovereign claims. But if you get this kind of like virgin territory or like, you know, a literal terra, null terra nullius, again, to use colonial language, um, you know, the space is totally empty, we can claim it, and then we can turn around to other states and be like, hey, we've claimed this space, you need to recognize us as sovereign ind and sovereign independent nation, and then, you know, they'll be able to be like, we don't need any taxes, low tax rate, citizenship for everyone, yay. And I point out, you know, this is very similar to what, like, Leopold's agents were doing, King Leopold II's agents were doing in um, Africa, where they're going out and saying like, oh, hey, we rule over this space's territory. Uh, now other states recognize us as independent and it worked, right? Like they were able to consolidate um, uh, massive amounts of private power and private governments over these spaces that would have been completely illegitimate otherwise, right? And to, you know, get away with massive amounts of violence because they were respected as a protectorate or whatever. Um, so I argue they're kind of trying to do the same thing. And again, it seems very wacky. It seems like, it, and it probably won't work exactly on the terms that they imagine, but they actually, I think history shows, can be quite successful at um, leveraging this logic to, to consolidate a lot of power for themselves. And we can see that kind of with things like Prospero, things like these, these special economic zones where they have kind of enclaved out 
somehow over themselves. So it was kind of trying to bring attention to the way that logic continues in wider Silicon Valley projects. Yeah, and and that struck me as also deeply, deeply racialized because once you make that argument that there is virgin territory out there to be claimed, a claim that you have, the the colonists have have made, then you can invoke this this deep, deep nostalgia and draw on this deep, deep white settler nostalgia um, that imagines the colonist is the sovereign individual um, who carries sovereignty with them and can establish new political orders. And this is something, as you rightly noted, sort of predates new liberal ideas, strictly speaking. Yeah, and that was what was so, like, I don't want to say shocking because it was expected, but like, uh, you know, outrageous of, of like Peter Thiel's comments. Where So like Peter Thiel is kind of known as a provocateur and he wrote this book, um, was the diversity myth, but I think this quote's in the other, the other book. Anyway, so he co-wrote this book. Yeah, Zero to One. He co-wrote this book with Blake Masters, Peter Thiel, who's this like big, you know, one of the founders of PayPal, a big, big Silicon Valley guy. And he wrote this book from zero to one. Um, and he said, uh, uh, you know, the problem with today is that, um, you know, previously in the past, men who tired of uh, the, like, cosmopolitanism of Europe could go off to, like, new spaces. Again, that's kind of weird. And it's very much, like, you're like, mm, the European colonists were tired of, like, multiracial Europe at this time period. Like, no, that's not, that is not what happened, right? But it's this idea that, like, oh, if you're, again, like, like Gerard O'Neill and, and the white flight about space, it's like, oh, well, uh, there's this kind of, like, Oh, like very, as you say, racialized language. Like there's like racial tension in in um, uh, the existing political order, and it's and I think it's also like an ideological tension. Like ah, people are so mad at these white supremacists, but also they're you know people are so mad at the libertarians, right? So it like feeds into race, even though they're kind of trying to uh, claim that it's about ideological commitments to like certain forms of political order. Um, uh, but if we can go out in space, and again, Gerard O'Neill says this like explicitly, and I was just listening to a podcast with Quinn Slobodian, and he was sort of saying the same things about this idea of like micropolitics and territorial enclaving, this idea that like, then you can have racially homogenous little zones or little micropolities or little like spaceships or whatever, but you could also have, you know, whatever, like, um, you know, all, all sorts of amalgamations of, of, um, power, right, or, or political communities. Um, Raymond Crabbe has some of the best, like, lines and critiques of this, which are just so pity, pithy, but I love one of his lines that he says, you know, freedom, which is a collective social condition, instead becomes a private place. And so it's this way, again, it's a very similar to, like, the white flight, you know, like, uh, uh, the suburban enclaving of, like, and, and private gated communities where certain groups of people like, ah, we want to take ourselves off and forge our own kind of exclusive rule. Um, uh, and we can do it because it's territorialized and it's spatially demarcated. So, so it's fine. It's like a little city. Um, ignoring the way in which like political power and forms of domination and forms of violence and exploitation are um, diffuse throughout different forms of space and that, you know, you're still going to have, um, you know, political relationships with people, even if you try to bound yourself off in these like spatial or territorialized terms, but it's a way like calling it territory, I guess is, you know, you, you're able to justify why you ought to rule this space. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, and you're careful in the article to say that it's not that corporations want to become state-like entities in the sense that they rule over a territory but you sort of it, that they they use the idea of territoriality to extend their political power can you sort of explain that distinction or yeah. why why that's important yeah and i think so this is kind of again one of like the meta or like larger interventions i wanted to make with the piece is that i think um objections to private power often come when that power becomes territorialized. So like charter cities, private cities, um, 
space colonies, space colonies, etc. Right? Like when private power has this sort of like territorial demarcation, it begins to look like a state or like a city or like something we consider a political entity, and then people get mad. They're like, "Stop it! <laughs> Don't do that anymore. That's illegitimate." And so the 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 kind of Silicon Valley political exeters that I highlight are pushing back against that and saying like, no, 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 we ought to have some private entities, private corporations rule over territorialized space. That, that's fine. Whereas I'm kind of trying to do the opposite in, in my piece and saying that like, no, 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 even uh, entities that don't rule over territorialized space ought to be political and therefore ought to be subject to like community community governments or social governments norms, whether that's democracy or not, right? So many corporations, um, as well, you know, so I say, you know, this can go for both, uh, kind of, it kind of goes both ways. So like, as I kind of uh, said before, indigenous tribes may or may not understand their rule to be based on territory or territoriality, yet we should still think of them as, as political entities. Um, but we should also think of corporations as political entities regardless or not of whether they rule over territory. Um, you know, corporations have, you know, this is my kind of the wider amounts of my research, but like corporations have tons of power over, you know, individuals structurally, right? Um, uh, you know, again, in certain spaces, you know, like they'll often have, like literally will have, I mean, the Dutch East India and British East India Company had like standing armies. But even today, if you look at like corporations like Shell or, you know, or whatever, like name your multi, your your big multinational corporation. They often also have violence um, at their disposal against workers, against whomever. Um, so even if they don't rule over territory, we really ought to consider them political. And that, so that's kind of again my my wider vision for my future academic work is making this argument that like we ought to consider non-territorial entities as political to push back against this idea of considering territorial entities as, as private or economic. Yeah, and, and then with that in mind, with that argument in mind, that transforms the way we think about people like Musk and Bezos is, is you know, their, their tweets about space colonization aren't just, you know, um, trivial or spurious, even though it, they often are. They, they are also sort of attempts at grabbing political power which they already have, and amassing even more and new kinds of power. Alina, you often ask this of your guests, and I'm going to ask this to you. Um, <laughs> if you could give one piece of advice to one entity or person, what would it be? Oh, this is so tough. You're, now you're getting at whether I believe change is individual or if change is structural. Like, what's the entity I'm going to choose? Oh, I'm going to say, like, the public, like, broadly can I don't know, I guess there's no one I want to give advice to because I feel like everyone has uh, interests in their outlook. So like I wouldn't give Biden advice because he'd be like, thanks very much, Alina, but I'm going to continue to be the president and I want outer space minerals for my own geopolitical reasons. Um, so I guess I would say the public, which is to say two things. One is resist outer space colonization just because it's being done by private individuals somewhere far away does not mean it will not affect you. It will affect you. It is going to destroy the environment. It will lead to like probably Musk and Bezos like solidifying lots of political control for themselves in ways that will ultimately like be bad for everyone. Um, and related to that is that I think um, Resistance does not have to be consumer resistance. So I feel like, especially in the, a lot of discourse about technology corporations, people always say like, oh, okay, I'm going to try to stop buying things on Amazon or like, oh, should I like delete my Facebook? Um, and these are forms of consumer exit, actually, to go back to the political exit, you know, Hirschman's exit voice and loyalty. These are, these are ways of... Um, you know, in Hirschman's terms, like economic ways of pressuring people as a as an individual consumer, but that you're the people are more than just consumers; they're also individual citizens. And again, you're they're also community members, right? So like, you can go and you can like try to protest the state and call your representative and say like, 
please regulate Amazon or, or whatever. Um, but that we should also consider all the other sites in which we have political power, right? So like go lobby your city council to say like, hey, w can you set up your our own cellular network or our own municipal cloud computing services, you know, um, kind of on a more local level and advocating for change and like insisting that they submit to kind of like political or like democratic forms of rule that like you ought to have a say in lots of different associations that rule your life, not just the state. Um, and so, yeah, so that's my two pieces of advice. Like, don't forget that you should resist state outer space colonization, even though it seems far away. And that when you resist, you don't just have to follow consumer exit. You can also uh, uh, organize and advocate for change through a variety of different associations at different levels. Excellent. And if you're still unconvinced, you should read <laughs> Alina Utrada's 2023 article, which is open, open, open source, access, open yeah. access, um, engineering territory, space and colonies in Silicon Valley in the American Political Science Review. Thank you, Alina, for coming on to your own podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much for hosting, Ben. <laughs> There's no one I would rather have had this conversation with. And we'll give a shout out to your two articles in the show notes if you want to learn more about Ben's amazing work. Thank you.